Today's message comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 27. Hear the word of the Lord. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? As do the other apostles and the brothers of our Lord and Cephas. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown a spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, in order that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we in an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. 
a, uh, a recent study just came out that found uh, when they're looking at employees and what's meaningful, that the, the pursuit of meaningfulness and purpose in their work has become so important that it's even raised above money. And then there's this other uh, study that came out that said, hey, if you pursue your passion, the thing that's inside you, you should be really careful because it's dangerous just pursuing what's inside you. Either way, wherever you come down on that, what's clear as day is that the human desire for purpose, the human desire for meaning, the human desire to find uh, a, a way to live a well-lived life is back on the table and it's hot. All you have to do is just uh, Google find my passion. And what you'll find is like not 10 entries, you'll find like 10 pages worth of take this survey or call this consultant or do this. The point is, is that people are uh, and you're, you're probably aware of this, but super co- uh, searching for, looking to connect with what is my purpose in life and how do I find meaning and what does it mean to live a well-lived life? So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to ask the question, is the gospel bigger than just the transaction for sin or does it apply to where we get our purpose and does it apply to the way that we live a well-lived life? give you where we're going one more time. We're going to look at, is the gospel bigger than just a transaction for sin, but does it apply to the whole of life, and can it actually transform our whole entire life? The way we're going to do that is we're actually going to start really small. Most things in the kingdom of God start with a seed, and then they grow out from there. So the question we're actually going to be answering uh, is, how should we exercise our rights with those who are outside of Christ? All right? So we've uh, obviously, Brandon already read 1 Corinthians 9. If you don't have a Bible, the text is included at the top of your sermon guide, so you can follow along. But the first thing I want you to, oh, sorry, let me just back up. Um, So as we get to 1 Corinthians 9, if you've been tracking with us in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul just got done talking about whether or not uh, believers have the right to eat food sacrificed to idols. To us, that feels like a really awkward conversation today. But basically, Paul said, However you think about your rights, what you should do is ensure that you don't damage another Christian. Do y'all remember that conversation? Right? Okay, so now as we get to chapter 9, what you're going to see, what Paul is talking about is how do we use our rights? And he's shifting the conversation from how do you use your rights inside the church to how do you think about your rights in those who are outside of the church or those who are outside of Christ. And then he's going to move from avoiding damage to pursuing good. So I want to unfold that for you. All right. So the first point, how does the gospel give us uh, a new way of life or call us into the potential of a life well lived? If you just uh, flow through Paul's first 15 verses, it's uh, really clear that Paul's doing um, one thing. He's building a case. And as you're reading it at the first time you read it, you wonder, like, did somebody forget to pay Paul? (laughs) You know, it's like, is he jammed up about something? And then the more and more that you think about it, and the more and more you sit with it, you realize that Paul's not actually arguing with the Corinthians. He's just stating what's already obvious to them. And what it is is that Paul starts out, look, I'm free just like you all are. And then he accelerates it to say, not only am I free, I'm actually an apostle. And not only am I apostle, my apostleship is I actually saw the risen Christ. Right? See, Paul's rights continue to accelerate. He goes on to say, uh, it's not just logical that I have these rights, it's experiential. In, in your world, you all know that um, a worker gets his livelihood from 
his work. So a planter gets his food from a vineyard, that a farmer gets his food from the sheep. He just, he goes through that move. But then he goes further and he says, not only is it experiential, it's biblical. The law says that I should get my food. So see, Paul is, Paul in the first 15 verses is, is accelerating the clarity of the fact that he has the right to receive money and livelihood from the Corinthians. And then you get to this point of tension to say, well, why is he doing that? Where is he going? And Paul spends the first 15 verses simply to say uh, what he says at the end of verse 12 and then the beginning of verse 15, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. And then verse 15, but I have made no use of any of these rights. See, Paul is simply saying, he's simply building the case for the fact that he has the right to receive compensation solely to demonstrate to the Corinthians what they already know. When Paul showed up, he didn't take money from them. So as you get to that, you wonder, uh, where does Paul get this from? Is this like a, y'all know the word asceticism? Asceticism is um, like, um, reject the things of, of the world and live a really simple, hard life. Is this just a new asceticism that Paul is, is preaching? Um, is it maybe a new moral standard? Is it maybe uh, some type of like bootstrapping? Paul says, hey, if you're in Jesus, you need to provide for yourself. You know, is that what he's doing? And what you find is that he's not. If you look back at all the other letters that Paul writes, you'll find Paul talks about this all the time. So what I want you to do is flip there with me. Right now we're in 1 Corinthians. We're going to flip over to Philippians 2. So I'm going to do it with you. 2 Corinthians, then keep going. Galatians is the next book. Then keep going. Ephesians and then Philippians. And if you turn to Philippians 2, look down at verse 5. See, Paul says where he gets the concept of laying down his own rights is from Jesus himself. Starting in verse 5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. See, where Paul gets the concept of laying down his own rights is from Jesus himself. But hold that point because we're going to come back to it. First, I want to review what are the rights that Jesus laid down. So we just looked at it in, in Philippians 2. Uh, if you can just put yourself sanctified imagination in the Trinity for a second, Jesus, as God the Son, is experiencing perfect relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And then to accomplish our redemption, what does he do? He, he decides to leave or he agrees to leave the Trinity. I don't know if y'all have ever, um, I know when we moved to Jacksonville from Nashville, we had really, really good friends. And what was, we were really excited about moving to Jacksonville, but what was hard is we were leaving the community that we were coming from. So the first thing that Jesus did is he opted to go ahead and leave the community of the Trinity, or at least the, the present moment of it. Then what did he do? Then it says that uh, not only um, did he do that, but the king of heaven, the one who was like literally in the throne room of heaven, left heaven to step down into human history. 
that not only did he step down into human history, but he actually was born into a family. Jesus came into the world as a baby. And then it says that he submitted himself to an obedient life. That imagine the king of heaven leaving heaven, coming into this crazy world, and then submitting himself to perfect obedience in a broken world. And then that obedience, you know where it ended? It ended in a cross. That Jesus went all the way from the perfect uh, communion, the perfect relationship of the Trinity, all the way down to the cross, which ended up in a tomb. And we'll talk more about it, but ended up in hell. And then on the third day, it says that he rose from the grave. But what you see in the, in the model of Jesus is that Jesus left his rights. And, dis, and it says that he emptied himself of them. Another way of saying that, and it's the, uh, I, I, I'm stealing this one. So one of my professors said it, but it's great. I was like, I'm, that's going to preach. Um, he said, the highest right you have is to not exercise your rights. Man, that the chief freedom you have is to not be free. And that's not a moral thing. That comes from Jesus. But listen, if you're here this morning, the reason Jesus did all of those things is because of this. It's because our world is an absolute mess. That our very first parents, the very first humans, what they did is decided to attempt independence from God. And then what that did is cascaded the whole entire world into brokenness. All the things that you look at, global warming, whether you agree with it or not, craziness in politics, agree with it or not, murder, shooting, fighting, races, like all of those things are a consequence of that first act of sin. And then the problem is, is that every single one of us have been born into the same exact problem. We inherited sin uh, from our first parents. And so Jesus, it didn't just... It didn't just um, it didn't just seem like asceticism for the Trinity to say, like, Jesus, you should leave and just show them how to live. There was a rescue mission. There was a problem. And so it was for the joy of our salvation that Jesus was willing to leave the community of heaven to step down into here. All right, so the first point that I want you to see is that um, where Paul gets, what Paul is saying in the first 15 verses is that he has chosen to not exercise his rights. But where he gets the model of not exercising his rights is from Jesus himself. All right, so I said we were going to double back to that point. Here's what I want you to catch this morning. For Paul, Jesus is not an example that Paul is trying to live up to. Jesus is an amazing example, but he is a really bad one for you to try to live up to. And you know why? Jesus is perfect. Even Paul was not going to live up to the standard of Jesus, which begs the question, how is it that Paul decided to take Jesus as a model that he would apply into his own life? And here's what it is. Paul, or Jesus, stepped down into human history, not just to like deal with sin in the abstract. He stepped down into human history to redeem Paul. He stepped down into human history to redeem me and to redeem you and to redeem the church throughout history. And the way Paul knew that is one day Paul was persecuting the church and then he was walking on his way to a town called Damascus to look for other Christians to drag them into court. And you know what happened? The dude ended up blind and mute on the side of a road because he met the risen Christ. And in that confrontation, he knew in a moment that Jesus had come to win Paul's redemption. 
But then here's the very sweet thing. Imagine if, you're, imagine if you're Paul and you had been persecuting the church and then you met the risen Christ. You would expect a beatdown, right? Like you would expect for that to go very, very, very poorly. And do you know what Jesus does? He says, Paul, go into the next town. Wait for a man named Ananias. He's going to come and give you your sight back and tell you what to do. And you're going to the Gentiles to tell them of salvation that was won by me. Paul meets the risen Christ as one who'd been persecuting the church. And you know what happens? He gets sent out on mission. Literally what happens is Jesus says, hey, my purpose in history, God's own mission, and my way of life, the vacating of my rights, Not only have I redeemed you, but I'm now inviting you into my own way of life and my own purpose. All right. So the reason that that Paul picks up Jesus' model as a model is simply this. He wanted, well, one, he had been invited by Jesus to do so, but then two, he wanted to see his entire life, not just his legal status, transformed by the gospel. Paul had the same exact question we're asking today. The reason he was marching to Damascus is Paul was looking for purpose and meaning in his life. The reason Paul was like such a righteous, law-keeping Jew is because he was looking for a way to live a life well-lived. Paul was in the exact same place that we were, and then he met Christ, and Christ said, here's your purpose, and here's your way of life, and it's me. If, uh, if I'm you right now, because I'll just be honest, I was, uh, I was you on Wednesday when I was reading this. I was going, um, well, that's great, Paul. You're an apostle. You saw the risen Christ. Uh, what's that got to do with me? Because <laughs> I'm not an apostle, and I never, I never saw the risen Christ. And then, you know what wrecked me? When Paul writes this, The very, so just think about it. Uh, So Paul is the first church planter to go out into new areas, proclaim the person and work of Christ, and see people come to faith. When Paul went to Corinth, no one had ever heard the name of Jesus before. Like it wasn't just that he, he planted another church and helped it grow. Literally, there was not a believer in the city of Corinth when Paul showed up. Do you know how long it is from the time that he made that very first visit and said the name of Jesus for the first time to when he's writing this letter? Four years. Four years. So here's the thing. Whether you're an apostle who has seen the risen Christ or whether, best case scenario, you've only been in Christ for four years, this applies to you. See, this isn't a question of maturity, it's, and the reason is, is because it's not about moralism. It's an invitation from Jesus. It's one that you get the moment that you meet the risen Christ. You not only have a shift in your legal status, you, you are not only go from on the bad side of God's wrath to the good side of his sonship, of his adoption, that you actually get given purpose, and you're given a new way of life. And it's the Trinity's own purpose and the Trinity's own way of being. Okay. So this moves us to our second point. What's the, what's the aim? Why has Paul laid down his rights? And why did Christ lay down 
his rights? Was it, again, was it just a, a, um, a rejection of the world and a way of living, or was there some purpose in it? And what I want you to do is flip back with me to 1 Corinthians 9, uh, the second part of chapter 12. I mean, sorry, verse 12. Right after saying, we have not made use of this right, he says, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. See, the reason that Paul had for not exercising his own rights was the exact same reason that Jesus had for emptying himself, and it was this. Paul was completely concerned with other people's responding to Jesus. That was it. The chief end of Paul's life, if you will, the way that he thought about all of his relationships, the way he thought about all of his interactions was this. Is this going to help this person move closer to or further away from Jesus? So you know what Paul did when he got to Corinth? Here's the thing. Uh, what was going on in Corinth at the time is there were patrons and what would happen is someone with like a new philosophy or a new, uh, maybe a new book out, or they had just created like a new consulting business, these really wealthy patrons, what they would do is they would hire this guy. They would pay for everything. They would basically promote him. But then what happened is they expected some type of like reciprocation. They expected there to be a back and forth with the guy. So what happened is when Paul showed up, he refused to be bought by a patron. And the reason was is because there would have been an expectation from them that they would have been treated differently than everybody else. At the same time, there were, uh, you know, not wealthy patrons. There were poor people in the, in the city. And if they would have seen that the gospel is something that you pay for, they probably would have stayed away. They wouldn't have been able to pay. And then more than that, if Paul were to have tangled up the gospel and the idea of payment, he would have confused the gospel itself that it came from Christ of his initiative to us, absolutely free of charge. All right, so what Paul does is the reason Paul refuses to take payment is simply this. He does not want to create an impediment to other people responding to the gospel. So how's that apply to us today? I don't know about y'all, but I don't know if you go around taking money for sharing the gospel from people, but you probably don't. Um, but I just want to, and there's a bunch, there's a lot of ways we can translate this, but I just want to talk about two really specifically. And if I am overly direct and I offend somebody, just talk to me afterwards, but uh, I'm just going to go there. The first one is somebody told me on Friday, they said, uh, you know, the problem with Christians is they love being right. The first way you put an obstacle in front of the gospel of Christ is your demand or your right to be right. And by that, it usually means like morally or theologically right. Your system is right. And listen, it's called right because you have the right to be right. You do. The same person went on to say, you know what, you know what they need to do, what Christians need to do, is just demonstrate how they're wrong and demonstrate that Christ loves them anyway. Can somebody say amen? All right, okay, all right, good. The chief thing that you have going for you in helping other people respond to Christ is you have the right to lay down your right to be right. It is completely fine for you to overlook a theological error of another person 
overlook a moral lapse of another person and then go ahead and lean in and share your sin with that person. And then you know what you have the right to do? You have the right to say that you didn't clean your act up, but Jesus Christ met you on the side of a road on the way to Damascus. That Jesus showed up and comforted you in the midst of your sin. So the first way that we, different than Paul, but in the same vein, the way that we have an option of putting an obstacle in the way of Christ is by demanding to be right. The second one in, um, is just this, uh, it, it, and it's, this isn't universal, it's just the moment that we live in. The second one is politics. This is the one where I was like, I'm going to do it, and y'all, I might, y'all might get mad at me. Um, listen, you, you have the right and good reasons to be Republican, and you have the right and good reasons to be a Democrat. You do. And you know what? Democrats in this room have bad reasons to be Republicans. And Republicans in the room have bad reasons to be Democrats. Do you know that? But you know what the deal is? If you're a Republican and you're dealing with a Democrat and you front your politics, they will hear Jesus as a political issue. You hear that? And listen, you have the right to hold that position. You do. You have the right. In fact, it's not just a a right you have, it's a good thing. We live in a democracy that demands our citizens participate. It's why we have the freedoms we do. It's why, like, we're here this morning, and it's not a problem for us to all show up and have our good clothes on and be doing this publicly. But here's the deal. When it comes to your politics, you have the right, when you're dealing with someone who's outside of Christ, not to be a Republican or not to be a Democrat. Or, and for that matter, you have the right to not be an independent, have no idea what you think. But the first thing, what I want you to see, and I'm dead serious about this, Paul's first perspective on his relationships comes from Jesus Christ by way of an invitation from Jesus Christ as the means for a, a life well lived and a purposeful life. And it's this, he wonders whether what I'm about to do is going to cause the other person to reject Jesus or not. You hear me on that? Everything runs through that grid for him first. And this morning, we're invited into the same exact purpose and way of living. The second thing that Paul does, and this is, uh, not that that one wasn't good, but this one's my favorite, is if you flip over to, to verse 19, Paul says, for though I am free of all, free from all, what that means, that little phrase means is uh, in Paul's, life and his station in, uh, you know, basically, well, in the moment when he's in uh, first century Greece, is he wasn't a slave to anybody. Like, nobody owned him. Paul was a Roman citizen, had his own means. He was able to go and do as he pleased. He said, although I'm free from all, I have made myself, and we translate it here as servant, but he uses uh, the word slave. I've made myself a slave to all so that I might win some. See, Paul's choice to exercise his rights was to enslave himself to other people. So you wonder, does that mean like actual uh, servanthood or slavery? Was he working for other people? What he meant there is in his own posture, he demanded that his perspective be the other person's response to Christ, the same exact move he did before. But then he goes on to say the reason he did it was to win some. 
See, what Paul did was his perspective was not just avoiding the negative of putting an obstacle in front of the gospel, but was actually to bring the gospel to other people, to go further than just being a problem, but to actually be a good in the world. And then what he says the way he did it is he says, uh, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. To those outside the law, as one outside the law. To the weak, I became weak. See, here in the text, when it says that uh, Paul became as a Jew, it doesn't mean that he became like a Jew, meaning that, um, that if Paul showed up in Jerusalem, that you wouldn't have seen a distinction between Paul and the other Jews who were, who were uh, trying to, you know, worship at the temple and pursue God through the rites of the, of the temple, or that if he showed up in Greece that was outside of the law, that there wouldn't have been a distinction between Paul who belonged to Christ and somebody who was living in a different culture. When he says uh, as, what he means is, I shifted and was flexible and adapted my way of life so that it fit what each of these people needed. Does that make sense? So he didn't say to Republicans, I became a Republican. He said to Republicans, I became as I needed to be with them. Or to a Democrat, I didn't become a Democrat. I became as I needed to be for a Democrat. Or to someone who's weak, I didn't necessarily, well, actually he does say he became weak, but I mean, to somebody who's outside the law, he didn't say, I became outside the law. He said, I became as I needed to be for those people who are outside the law. See, what Paul was doing was this. Paul was taking within himself the complete flexibility and adaptability to do whatever he needed to do to establish and maintain relationship with each of these categories. Do you hear me on that? Paul was pursuing towards one end, pursuing relationship with these different categories of people. And the reason he was doing this is that is this. When you're in relationship with someone, here's what happens. Eventually, like I mean, not just acquaintance, but you become friends. Eventually what happens is their pain comes out. And if you're a good friend, eventually what happens is your pain comes out. And as you're in relationship with each other and your pain starts to come out, what happens is you find overlapping spheres of pain. See that? Y'all ever experienced that? You're living with someone, you're doing life with them for a while, and you start to hear about the difficulties they have in life. And then they start to hear about yours. And eventually you get to the place where it's like, dang, we've been through that, that same thing. Or maybe it's not identical, but it's pretty similar. You know, I've shared this with you guys uh, pretty often, but Jen and I went through 10 years of infertility. We lost two babies. For us, uh, that has enabled for other people who've had difficulty conceiving or really desired children or lost someone, it's become an, a sphere of overlapping pain for us, right? Like we understand where they're coming from. But then what that overlapping pain does is it's an opportunity for the gospel, for the way that the person and work of Christ has comforted you to literally move from your heart into their heart. You hear me on that? The reason Paul was willing to become just about anything to anybody was this. He was in pursuit of relationship with these people for the sake of seeing them respond to Christ. And the reason he pursued relationship was because he knew that all of these people are living life underneath Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is the curse. It's when death and pain and brokenness and thorns and th all the nastiness of this world entered creation, 
that eventually, if he was just in their orbit long enough, the moment for the gospel would show up. That if Paul could just stay in the pocket long enough, the opportunity to give them the gospel would show up. So what I want you to see in the first two points is this, is that um, when, when, you, when you come to Christ and you meet the risen Christ, two things happen. The first one is it gives you a new way of life. It literally does. It, it gives you a simple, practical way to live a life well lived, and it's this. Enslave yourself to the good of other people. Lay down your own rights to be right. And then once you've done that, it gives you an amazing purpose. And you know what that purpose is? It's God's own mission in the world. It's this. It's see other people respond to Jesus. The reason you lay down your rights isn't just to be subject to other people. It's to participate in what the Trinity's doing in creation and in history. All right, so that leads us to our third point. What's our motive for doing this? Why would we, why would we uh, participate in the gospel? Why would we do it this way? And, and the, 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 the obvious first thing to say is that this is super hard. It is. Like living with another person, the perspective of another person's good, choosing to listen and hear rather than be heard, choosing to share your sin instead of your theological accuracy, that's hard to do. When somebody else is making a mess in your living room, it's hard to not just say, clean it up. Isn't it? And then this is what, that's why Paul said, he goes on this last little rant in those last couple of verses. Do you see it down there? Verses 24 to the end. He says that living life this way takes practice. It takes intentionality, meaning it takes like purpose. It takes hard work. It takes uh, stick to It's something that you learn to do, and it's something that unfolds over the long haul, and it's something that you do for the long haul, which means if you're going to do it for the long haul, you got to have a long haul reason for it. And here's your long haul reason. We already talked about this morning, but I just want to say it clear as day. You do not lay down your rights as a way to prove yourself to Jesus. You don't. You don't lay down your rights as a way to win something that wasn't already won for you. The reason this is even accessible for us is because Jesus already left everything to win everything for us. You are already in possession of what you're seeking to win. But you're still alive. You're still here. And so what Jesus has done is he's invited you. He literally loves you enough to not just keep the mission for himself, but he's invited you into it. He said, hey, you need purpose for your life. How about God's own purpose? You need a way to live the life that you're living here. How about the way I live my life living here? The reason that you lay down your rights in pursuit of other people responding to Christ is because it's part of your transformation. It's literally part of your redemption. It's the invitation from Jesus to participate with him in what he's doing. I'll say it another way. Do you know that you belong to and are in union 
with a God who is on mission. Some in theological circles, they call it a missional God. What that means is that at the center of his character and his story is a God who is rescuing a people. And your faith says that you're united to him. So what it means is that your union with him wouldn't just produce a moral outcome. What it means is that you would naturally be swept up in the sense of intimacy and relationship into what he's doing. The reason you have a right to lay down your rights is because it's a privilege. God's own mission is the mission that's given to you. And the Trinity's own way of life is the way of life that's offered to you. I'm going to say this last thing. If you're here this morning and you're in your, let's just say you're in your 20s. And you're like wanting to change the world. Serious. Do you know that desire is placed there by God? I'm not kidding. As the image of God created by him to rule and have dominion in this world, you were designed to want to see redemption come in this world. There is no way that you can change this world that's greater than the way that God himself has pursued changing this world. There's not a purpose or a mission or a way of life that you can give yourself to that's greater than this one. If you're here this morning and you're in your 30s and your 40s and you've, I don't mean to depress y'all, but you've moved past like I'm going to change the world into I'm just trying to figure out how to contribute. <laughs> y'all know where I'm at this morning, but... Um, there is not a bigger, better, more sustainable, worthwhile contribution you can make than God's own mission. And there's not another way of pursuing it than the way that Jesus himself pursued it. The rest of y'all, if you're here this morning and you're, let's say, you're retired, I don't know. I don't know if you retire after the 40s. I miss some of y'all, but... Um, And you're, seriously, and you're thinking about how do I end well? How do I, how do I, I've, I've, I have, uh, I've learned about myself. I've made a contribution and now I just want to, I want to culminate, I want to culminate that contribution. Do you know this? There is no way better for you to end than God's own mission. The invitation you have this morning is to end with Jesus is to end in Christ's own mission. And the way of life that you're invited to end with is Christ's own way of life. That whether you're just out of the cradle or headed into the grave, that the exact same mission and purpose and way of life that you're called into is the very one that Christ himself came and lived among us. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning we have gathered as your church. We've gathered as uh, those whose redemption has been won by you. We gather as those who have been called into intimacy and relationship and union with you, that you yourself are the one that holds that uh, relationship intact. You're the one who Holy Spirit draws us to Jesus. And we realize this morning that it's not so much an expectation as it is a privilege that you invite us to participate with you. 
And so we pray that as a church, you would cause us to be a people who are Christian, that you would call us to be a people who are Christ people, who would be not just willing to, but happy to see ourselves emptied, to see our rights laid down, and that you would make us a people who have the joy of seeing other people be raised to faith, be raised to life, to see other people respond to you. But we also pray you'd make us a people who don't do that out of trying to prove ourselves to you, but do that in response to your invitation, that we do it out of the joy of being with you and wanting to see our life transformed. And more than all that, Jesus, we recognize that we're waiting on you to return. And so we pray this morning that you'd come back quickly. And we pray all this in your name. Amen.